we're so numb to these massive breaches that it feels like they're almost inevitable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we've got a return visit from Ray Redacted. Mm-hmm. He's got some follow-up from his previous visit, as well as some new information to share. But first, a word from our sponsors at no before. So, who's got the advantage in cybersecurity? The attacker or the defender? Intelligent people differ on this, but the conventional wisdom is that the advantage goes to the attacker. But why is this? Stay with us and we'll have some insights from our sponsor, No Before, that puts it all into perspective. And we're back, Joe. I'm going to kick things off for us this week. You're familiar with the notion of a Ponzi scheme? Yes, I am. Similar, I guess, to a pyramid scheme? Similar, very similar, yes. What's what What's the difference? Uh, the difference is generally that a, in a pyramid scheme, people kind of know that they're in some kind of scheme where they have to go out and re- recruit new people. But a Ponzi scheme, people may not know that they're, or don't know that. They're, they're just seeing returns on their investments. Yeah. So uh, the way a Ponzi scheme works is I present you with an investment opportunity. Right. And I say you're going to get amazing returns on the on this investment opportunity. That's right. But there is no investment opportunity. What I'm really doing is I'm going and finding other people right. to also give me their money, and I'm paying you returns based on the money that they're giving me. Right. But then I'm promising them returns, yep. and so then I have to go get more people mm-hmm. to pay the returns that I owe them. Yep. Eventually, if you imagine the shape of a pyramid, yep. it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you go down and collapses under its own weight. That's right. If you're an early investor in either one of these schemes, you can actually make out. You can. Right. But chances are you're you not won't. Be. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or you're going to run afoul of the law, which oh, is what happened to... Very quickly, you'll run afoul of the law. This gentleman uh, from Rochester, New York, a gentleman named Perry Santillo, who was running a Ponzi scheme. Hmm. He bilked people out of over $100 million. Wow. Actually, $155 million. This is a pretty big Ponzi scheme. Ran this Ponzi scheme starting back in 2012. Huh. And lost over $70 million of the $155 million. How did he lose $70 million? I think he spent it. Okay. <laughs> or paid it out as returns. In other words, it's money that cannot be recaptured. Right. And built people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars sure. by telling them that they were going to be investing in legitimate investment strategies. Right. Now, what I think is particularly interesting about this scheme is... One of the ways that they got people to have confidence in the scheme was they would buy up legitimate investment firms where the owners were about to retire. Really? Yeah. So let's say I'm running, you know, the Acme investment firm here in Maryland. Right. And I decide I've had a great career and it's time for me to move on. I'm going to you know, retire down to Florida and cash out of my business. Right. These guys would come along, make me an offer for the business, buy out the business. And as part of that buyout, they're buying my book of business. They're right. buying, they're out, buying your customers. They're buying my customers. Right. So then they would convince the customers to convert their investments. Oh, this is horrible. Yeah. I don't know if I've discussed this before, but I come, my family is kind of a financing family. Okay. My mom worked for one of these investors that you're talking about, and my dad actually managed investment funds and was a CPA. But what they've done here is absolutely terrible. 
yeah. or what this guy has done, because he's gone into people who have had sound investment advice, mm -hmm. and now he's capitalizing on that and destroying these people's nest eggs. Right. Yeah. And that's precisely what happened. Evidently, this guy, uh, not surprisingly, liked to live high off the hog. Really? Had a, <laughs> an extravagant uh, lifestyle with uh, expensive suits and cars and houses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But now he's behind bars facing fines. Uh, of course, the uh, FBI who took him in, they're trying to get back as much of the funds as they can to return to the victims. But of course, they say they're not going to be able to. They're not going to be able to recover everything. And these people are probably out. It sounds like close to 75 percent. Yeah, it? it's they're, they're going to get back pennies on the dollar. Right. Likely. Uh, it's good that they caught him. But I think the cautionary tale here is about those investment firms. If, if someone comes to you and says, hey, we want to convert your investments to something else. Do your due diligence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is tough because generally you think that the people who are retiring, these are people you've trusted all their lives. And these people have also been scammed. Right. That's true. Right. Because they have relationships with these folks. Exactly. That they, they're customers. I know, you know, I have friends who work in investment firms and it's not merely transactional. No, they're, it is not. They're helping people achieve their dreams and, and uh, provide uh, security for their retirement and so on and so forth. They know these people. It would surprise me very much if they were, you know, cavalierly turning the business over to someone that they hadn't attempted to check out themselves. Right. And they're going to send an email out that says, I'm retiring. I'm selling my book of business. Right. Here's your new investment manager. I think he's a good guy. Exactly. Right. Turns out he's not. Not such a good he's guy. Now, no. He's now in prison. <laughs> yeah. Where he belongs. Yeah. So cautionary tale, one to look out for. That wrinkle about buying out other investment companies, that's a new one. I yeah, haven't heard about that before. Smart, but I mean, this guy has hurt a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my story this week. What do you have for us, Joe? Well, I'm, I'm staying with the same theme of hurting a lot of people. <laughs> and this one comes from uh, Lisa Voss, who writes over at the Naked Security blog, which is from Sophos. Uh -huh. You know, we do a lot of talking about deep fakes. Yeah. On this show, you talk about on a Cyberwire. Mm -hmm. Do you know who gets victimized most by them? Is it politicians? No, I would say there's a lot of fear around the possibilities of what deep right. fakes could do with politicians. But right. I would say so far, no, not yet. No, it's not. It's, it's actually women. Mm. women that get victimized by these things yeah. the most. Not surprising, I guess. Uh, there's a report titled The State of Deepfakes, which has been released by a company called DeepTrace. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Actually, we have a gentleman from DeepTrace is going to be a guest on this show in a few weeks. Oh, very good. Yeah. They use deep learning and computer vision for detecting and monitoring deepfakes on the internet. They found that 96% of deepfakes being created in the first half of this year were porn. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mostly being non-consensual. Right. Right. A lot of them are made of celebrities without compensation or even permission from the actors. I mean, when you have a serious actor, I, I really don't imagine a situation in which they would give their permission for their face to be used in a video like this. Also, the number of deep fakes has doubled, doubled in the seven months leading up to July 2019. Mm. And this growth is because of the availability of easier to use tools. Mm -hmm. All right. One example of this was an app that came out a couple of months ago called Deep Nude. I remember. This was an app that lets you create a nude photo of anyone you took a picture of. And mm -hmm. I think it only lets you create nude photos of women. That is correct. If you took a picture of a guy. It would turn it into a naked it would woman. Turn yeah. it into a naked woman. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I would hazard to say they knew who their target audience was. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Their target audience is, is a bunch of gross guys, right? <laughs> right. Uh, that got banned quickly. Mm -hmm. 
right? Well, it got pulled. It, yes, yeah. it got banned and pulled. pulled. The the uh, I think the person who created it was perhaps naively unprepared for the avalanche of criticism that would come his way. And, uh, thought, <laughs> was he really naively unprepared of, for that? Uh, I don't think he expected this app to be as, as popular as it was because he put a $50 price tag on it. Yeah. And then people bought it up and it got pulled from the markets, right? Then there was another one, a face swapping app called Zhao in China that got pulled because people were afraid of privacy violations. But deep fakes have been banned on lots of places. Reddit was one of the first places to ban it. And that's actually where the term deep fake comes from, is from, mm -hmm. from a Reddit board. Twitter has banned it and major porn sites have banned it, mm. right? Now- Yeah, that's interesting. If a major porn site bans something, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think I've said this before, that, you know- <laughs> Maybe that's something we should be looking a little bit harder at. Right. Maybe we should be analyzing this more and doing a little more thinking about it. Someone has the moral flexibility of a major online porn site when they think, you know, that's too much for us. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, you could see the the legal hazard that they'd have there, too. That, that, right. That could be a big problem. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That can be a huge problem. Most of the software that makes these deep fakes requires some kind of programming ability and a GPU. You need a good GPU or a system with a bunch of GPUs in it. Right. Or, or a lot of patience. Right. Or a lot, a of, lot of free time on your hands. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> when I say a lot of patience, I mean, these GPUs really process this deep learning data a lot faster than you could ever hope to process it on a uh, on a CPU. It, it does require a GPU, essentially. It becomes an intractable problem without a GPU. So some sort of investment there in hardware. Yeah, but it's not a big investment. I mean, I think the, the most advanced GPU on the market right now for gaming is like seven or 800 bucks. It's not a lot of money. And it's only getting easier. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. The technology is getting easier to use as well. There mm -hmm. are tutorials out there on how to do this step by step. Mm -hmm. And that also the software is starting to implement better GUIs, right. graphic user interfaces. It lets people do this. Now, here's my concern for this. And this is something that Lisa Vass has brought up as well. Think of the reputation damage that can be done to a young woman if, if a deep fake were to be released of her. Mm -hmm. Even just a picture. Mm -hmm. It starts circulating among her social group. And for no other reason than, say, like revenge porn. This can be devastating. Well, I'm imagining someone out there looking for a job and the employer does a Google search on that person's name. Up comes the deep fake. Yeah, that could have real world implications there. I mean, right. Right. financial implications for somebody. Mm -hmm. It could be devastating. Mm -hmm. I think we need to do a lot more thinking about this problem. Google and Facebook are investing heavily in this. Google just created a uh, data set for use in machine learning to detect these deep fakes. Mm. And Facebook has dumped something like $10 million into it. I think these big tech companies are starting to take it seriously. I think we need to ask people in government to start taking it a little more seriously and not for their own selfish reasons, right? Mm. Of, of course, people in government have a real reason because they're the ones that stand to lose some credibility here. But I really would like to see the focus shift to the general public, the general population of the world, really. Well, I would imagine we'd see legislators jump on this when it became a real problem for them. If people started to flood online forums and so forth with deep fakes of the politicians themselves that would get their attention and make them go, wait a minute, we need perhaps some regulation is, is in order here. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think that if, if this started impacting politicians more in, in the same way that it could impact uh, the rest of us, then, then maybe. But I'm not saying that we should advocate for that. I don't want to see that either. I would like to see a little bit of forethought from people. This is something that should and kind of does have broad bipartisan support because it is a universal problem. I think it's something that everybody agrees on. I'd just like to see some action on it. 
Yeah, I guess the challenge is you you don't want to overcorrect. No, you don't. You, you don't want to stifle legitimate free speech by going too far with it. That's always the trick, right? That is a delicate balance we try to achieve here in yeah. the United States. All right. Well, certainly one to watch. And like I said, we're going to have a gentleman from Deep Trace on the show here in a couple of weeks. So we'll look forward to that. Right now, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day was sent to us by a listener this week. And it goes like this. Join the Illuminati. Greetings from the Illuminati World Elite Empire, bringing the poor, the needy, and the talented to limelight of fame, riches, powers, and security. Get recognized in your business, political race, rise to the top in whatever you do, be protected spiritually and physically. All these you will achieve in a twinkle of an eye when you get initiated to the great Illuminati Empire. Once you are initiated to the Illuminati Empire, you will get numerous benefits and reward. Note that this email message was created solely for the purpose of our recruitment scheme, which will end next month. <laughs> and this offer is for unique ones only. If you are not serious on joining the Illuminati Empire, then you are advised not to contact us at all. This is because disloyalty is highly not tolerated here in our organization. Do you agree to be a member of the Illuminati New World Order? If yes, then kindly reply back to us on our direct recruitment email. Please note, kindly make sure all your responses are sent directly to the email stated above for more instructions on our membership process. Note, some email providers incorrectly place official Illuminati messages in their spam junk folder or promotion what? folder. This can divert and exclude our responses to your emails. Thank you, the Illuminati. Dave? I have always wanted to join the Illuminati. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised they haven't reached out to you before, Joe. I know, I know. Uh, you, know here, you know what the first red flag on this is? Mm. Is that they say that the Illuminati is bringing the poor, the needy, and the talented to the limelight of fame, mm -hmm. riches, and power. That is not what the Illuminati does. <laughs> is that right, Joe? Yes. How do, you, mean, how do you know that, Well, Joe? I mean, <laughs> as a guy who's always wanted to join, I don't know, Dave. I see, right. You, you've done your homework. I've done my yeah. homework. All right. Mm-hmm. As an Illuminati hopeful. As an Illuminati hopeful. Yeah. Right. Illuminati confirmed. All right. Well, thanks for sending that in. That's a fun one. That is awesome. Coming up next, we've got a return visit from the gentleman who goes by the name Ray Redacted. He's got some follow-up from his previous visit as well as some new information to share. But first, a message from our sponsors, Know Before. Now let's return to our sponsor's question about the attacker's advantage. Why do the experts think this is so? It's not like a military operation where the defender is thought to have most of the advantages. In cyberspace, the attacker can just keep trying and probing at low risk and low cost, and the attacker only has to be successful once. And as No Before points out, email filters designed to keep malicious spam out have a 10.5% failure rate. That sounds pretty good. Who wouldn't want to bat nearly 900? But this isn't baseball. If your technical defenses fail in one out of ten tries, you're out of luck and out of business. The last line of defense is your human firewall. Test that firewall with No Before's free phishing test, which you can order up at nobefore.com slash fishtest. That's K-N-O-W-B-E, the number four, dot com slash fishtest. And we're back. Joe, I recently uh, had a chance to speak once again with the gentleman who goes by the name Ray Redacted Online. He prefers to 
maintain a certain amount of anonymity on his Twitter account. Oh, his last name's not really redacted? His last name is not really redacted. Oh, no, I imagine that would state. cause problems when he tried to apply for actual things. But uh, <laughs> no, he's, he's a good guy, well-known online, yep. uh, well-respected. And uh, we had him on a few weeks ago, and we got some follow-up, uh, a couple things that we wanted to address. So here is my conversation with Ray Redacted. Ray, it's great to have you back. And after your last appearance, we had a couple of messages come in from listeners with some follow-up. So I just wanted to go through some things one at a time with you and maybe clarify some things, maybe a correction or two. Where do you want to begin? Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, after the uh, previous podcast about SIM hijacking, we did get quite a bit of listener mail and some messages on Twitter. It was a couple different things. And I guess the easiest place to start with is just the blatant correction that I need to make that with regards to several listeners reached out and said, I'd made the statement that SIM hijacking was not very common in Europe. And apparently that was dead wrong. <laughs> it is hmm. absolutely common. And it's okay. also uh, growing as well. So we heard from a listener named Liam that was in Ireland that said, you know, it's definitely a problem there. So I completely missed on that one and, and uh, want to make sure that I retract, not redact, retract that uh, statement. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair <-retracted>. enough. <laughs> right, fair enough. What else did we hear about? So a couple of people actually reached out and talked about uh, how do you handle this if someone cannot necessarily afford a computer or possibly even uh, have access to other online resources, especially around the Google Authenticator kind of resets and things like that? And I just wanted to kind of point out that there's not a real easy answer for that. A lot of the modern banking things assume... Uh, rightly or wrongly, that people do have access online. But Google does have an option where you can print out actual emergency backup codes for reset, you know, as another possible option for resetting their services. And of course, the Google Voice service that we had mentioned as a potential way to mitigate SIM hijacking, that's a free service from them as well. So we're talking about someone who may be in a situation where they don't have a mobile device, they don't have a, a computer, maybe they're using a, a system at a local library or some public access computer is how they're limited with their access. Correct. Yes. And then and the question was, was, you know, if, if we can't rely on text messaging on non-smartphones, right, to just think in terms of like a flip phone or something like that, you know, what other ways could they implement multi-factor? And, and the reason that this one caused me a lot of, uh, I struggled with it a little bit is because we don't ever want to fall in the pitfall of telling people not to use anything at all, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of a, a kind of a dangerous spiral when people say, well, SMS is so insecure, so just don't use multi-factor at all. Well, that's certainly not the path we want to go on. It's always better to have multi-factor of some kind, but you just need to be aware of the strengths and weaknesses of each type. So there are a couple of options out there beyond having your own device. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. What else did we hear about? So one of your listeners actually reached out to me and brought my attention to the fact that PayPal now allows OTP or the basically the the uh, one-time password authenticators like Google Authenticator and Authy, which I'd kind of recommended uh, be done. Unfortunately, I dug really deep into that PayPal uh, implementation side, and there's some serious problems with the way that they've brought it about. Hmm, it's interesting because I, I, I saw a lot of positive feedback that PayPal had at long last enabled this. Yeah. So as most people know, kind of in the in the social engineering space, there's a type of service called knowledge based authentication, which is kind of the crappiest authentication you could ever do. That's where hmm. they ask you what street did you grow up on? 
or what your mother's maiden name is, or maybe your birthday, right? Unfortunately, on the PayPal multi-factor authentication choices, if you go to log in and you don't have your second factor, you can immediately say, I don't have this or I don't want to use that. And it defaults to asking you some very, very simple knowledge-based authentication questions. And there's no way to turn that off. So hmm. not only can you, once you get it set up with your Authy or your Google Authenticator, not only can you bypass it by forcing it to SMS unless you remove your phone number, but even worse, anyone can actually go to bypass it if they know the most basic information about you. Like we're talking about really accessible OSINT. So if you're doing that on PayPal, I would recommend lying to those questions. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, right. And think of it just as another password. Because if you give them the correct answers, then that's going to leave a pretty big gaping hole that could potentially be abused. And most people do have PayPal linked to a bank account. So it's not like it's a small vulnerability that's there. Yeah, that's surprising to me. In enabling this stronger factor, they still sort of fall back to the weakest. Yes. And I know that a lot of people on Twitter have talked about this. I've seen Leslie Carhart, who goes by Hacks for Pancakes, talk about it. I think even Krebs had brought attention to it as well. Uh, so it's not like this is a, is a secret. We're not like divulging anything that's not publicly out there. But I've never seen a response from PayPal. And you would think that if all of the companies in the world that would want to have airtight multi-factor, they have the biggest interest in fixing this and getting away from knowledge-based authentication bypass. Yeah. One other topic I want to hit with you, and that is this notion of people becoming resigned about their private information being out there. Uh, you listened to a recent interview that Carol Terrio did on our show, and uh, the person she was talking to mentioned this. You had some thoughts. Yes. Yeah, so uh, on the episode, Carol was saying that when she kind of evangelizes to her friends about protecting their data, uh, credit card numbers and things like that, uh, credit information, that she commonly hears people say, oh, Carol, it's way too late for that. My data is already out there. There's nothing we can do about you know protecting that, et cetera. And that's actually something that we talk about a lot in cyber uh, security education courses. I actually call that the fallacy of futility. Hmm. And what it is, is it's the idea that if we take as a fact that online privacy doesn't exist anymore, right? If, if we say, well, there's no such thing as online privacy, it's complete. The problem is, is that's not a binary statement, right? It doesn't either exist or it doesn't. There are varying degrees of privacy. So, for example, I'm resigned to the fact that because I was involved in the OPM breach, there are Chinese hackers that have access to my information, period, right? But that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that I want the 13-year-old script kiddies that are pouring through IRC to have access to it, right? We, it's very important to keep in mind that just because your data has been breached before, and if we look at things like Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned, et cetera, almost everybody listening to this podcast has been involved in at least one breach. That doesn't mean that you necessarily want to be involved in others, right? So, uh, and, and ultimately, the, some of that data may be different, like especially if you're using unique email addresses, but it, it is in everyone's best interest to try to protect themselves, you know, through OPSEC and, and practicing good security hygiene. Where do you think this false belief comes from? Why do people head down this path? Well, I think it really is driven by the fact that just like in cybersecurity, we have something called alert fatigue. We have something called outrage fatigue and we have something called breach fatigue, right? Which is when you see a big announcement about DoorDash and you know millions and millions of people's information being leaked or even words with friends, right? 
uh, we're so numb to these massive breaches that it feels like they're almost inevitable, right? And to a certain degree, when humans feel like something is basically inevitable, there is a tendency to just assume that it's going to happen at all times and that there's nothing that can be done to mitigate the, the impact of it. Hmm. That's interesting. I, it makes me think about, um, you know, I had people who, you know, they got their car stereo stolen so many times that they just started leaving the door unlocked. So at least that way, the, the glass wouldn't get broken anymore. <laughs> sure, sure. But I would actually argue that there are better things to do that can prevent your car from being stolen uh, necessarily <laughs> than that. That is an interesting analogy that's there because we're not talking necessarily about your car getting hurt when they take that data, but you reusing passwords, which is by far the, the most common option mistake that is being made, the reuse of, of even strong passwords, right? Uh, that is a glaring example of the people that are doing that are going to be victimized by credential stuffing and the people that have unique passwords or password managers are not. Joe, what do you think? I appreciate Ray coming back on to answer listener questions. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, there is some cost to multi-factor at some level. Yeah, a cell phone is kind of expensive, and maybe you have a uh, limited number of texts you can receive because you're on a prepaid plan. But you can get inexpensive cell phones and then use Google Authenticator on them. That's free. And getting the Google Authenticator code is free. There are low-cost options for this, not free options, though. Yeah. I think it's a good point, though, that you shouldn't have to buy your way into this type of security. And, and it, it's good that there are printed-out paper options. That is available for, like, account recovery, but not necessarily for two-factor authentication. I yeah. Think, which is unfortunate. You know, we should be able to have this for free, but this software still needs hardware to run on. And the software is free. It's just that the hardware that it runs on isn't. Knowledge-based authentication is bad. It is a form of, of multi-factor authentication. It's probably better than nothing, but it's really so much less secure than even SMS. Yeah. And the fact that PayPal just defaults to KBA is really bad and that you can't turn that off. That's terrible. And I do recommend that you do exactly what Ray says here, and that is lie on those questions, mm -hmm. you know? What's the street you grew up on? Copper Cup. I didn't grow up on Copper Cup way. And then put that in your password manager. And then put that in your password manager in the notes field. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to don't have to remember it. I really, really, really appreciate Ray's stance here on what he calls the fallacy of futility. The data about us that's out there is a lot like the overall security picture. I say that security is a spectrum and you want to be on the more secure end of that spectrum. So like when Ray talks about using SMS as opposed to using nothing, yes, that's not the most secure solution you can use, but it is way better than not having any multi-factor authentication. That moves you in the more secure direction on the spectrum. And the same is true for your data. You want to move yourself to the more secure side of the spectrum. And you do that by protecting your information and don't let the amount of information fatigue lull you into some form of learned helplessness. Vigilance is key. And, you know, I know it's exhausting. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you have to keep it up. Right. Every time there's a breach, yes, you may lose another piece of your data, but don't lose hope <laughs> is what I'm saying. I find myself falling back on the analogy of public health because I think it's useful. Just because I get a cold doesn't mean I'm going to stop washing my hands. Yeah. That, it, you know, I just, oh, I got a cold. I guess all that hand washing was a waste of time. Right. No, it you know? wasn't. <laughs> you got to keep up. And it's yes, it's a little extra effort. But, you know, I, I think that's an excellent an analogy, actually, Dave. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that is our show. We want to thank Ray Redacted for joining us once again. You can find him on Twitter at Ray Redacted. We want to thank all of 
you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are the social engineering experts and the pioneers of new school security awareness training. Be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com slash fish test. Think of Know Before for your security training. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 